Hey guys, before we get started today, I just want to share a quick word from one of our sponsors. Physical Attraction is a podcast that explores science, technology, and the future. They're currently in the midst of a series about apocalyptic scenarios, and they alternate between interviewing expert guests and exploring individual topics like artificial intelligence and climate change. If this sounds like your kind of thing, visit their website at physicspodcast.com, follow Physics Pod on Twitter, or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get our show. Thanks, and enjoy the show. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt felt right. And I just thought, well, it it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Erin Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about the unique obstacles women face in science. Because of the format of these episodes, we had to narrow it down to just two of those obstacles, but trust me, there are many more, each one more exciting than the last. If you would like to hear more, we'll be posting some stories about women in science from our back catalog to our Twitter account this week, so please stay tuned for that. And also, as you may know, March is Women's History Month. If you're in the New York area, I highly recommend checking out some of the Women's History Month events at our home caveat on the Lower East Side. Now, with all that said, our first story today is from Allison Williams. It was recorded in February 2018 at Denison University in partnership with Denison and their narrative nonfiction writing program. The theme that night was Connections. When I was just over 15, I got hired to wash glassware in the lab of Dr. Lynn Willett. And I was really excited because I had delivered papers, I was babysitting, I was washing pots and pans in the local college um, um, food service. And having a job in a lab was a little bit better pay by the hour. And it was a steady income, all of which was important for me to save up so I could go to college and because I wanted to buy an oboe. That was what I thought I might be doing with myself as being a professional oboist. So I walked into this lab, which unbeknownst to me, a few years earlier, Dr. Willett had been sitting in a department meeting and his department was deciding which candidate to hire. And in his mind, by far, the best candidate was a a young woman who he thought was really smart, really talented. And he said he sat there and listened to his colleagues make excuses about why they could not hire this woman to work in their department. And he was floored. And finally, one of his colleagues said, well, what if she gets upset and starts to cry? And he said it really just shocked him and it hit him what women in science were up against. And he vowed that he was gonna do something about it. So ever since that experience, Dr. Willett only hired women to work in his lab. So this was unknown to me till 20 years later, but I walk into a lab full of women and to me, it was just great, you know? And I, I got to know these people. We had a great camaraderie, and I washed glassware, which is not the most exciting things. And, you know, I had to rinse 10 times in acetone, rinse 10 times in toluene. 
there was no ventilation back then. And, yeah, sometimes you have to sit down with a Coke at the end of the day and sober up so you could drive home. <laughs> I'm, they don't let you have toluene in the lab hardly at all anymore, but that's another story. But gradually, I got to know how to do the assays that these chemists were doing. The one thing that happened in this lab was that, you know, people were really willing to help me, to teach me. Um, Dr. Willett was this sort of stern person, and he, he was kind of scary and intimidating. At least I was intimidated by him. Um, he had very high standards, um, but he let you learn from your mistakes. So he was a really good teacher and a really good mentor. So finally, when it was deemed that my glassware came back really squeaky clean because they were measuring very trace amounts of materials and the glassware had to be, you know, completely clean of any contaminants. And when it was finally deemed that my work was good enough, I got a promotion. I was so excited. I got to weigh out manure. <laughs> I was thrilled because this meant a vote of confidence in my work and it meant that I was doing a good job. My mother was kind of appalled. She would sort of ask me every day if I'd washed my hands before I left the lab, not knowing that I wasn't actually touching the manure, but um, I wore gloves and all, but I was thrilled. So fast forward you know, a little bit and by the time I graduated from high school, I was doing the assays that these women were all the master's level chemists were doing. And it wasn't without some, you know, rocky periods here and there. For instance, one time we were going out to the barn to do experiments and we had to bring all of the equipment to the barn with us. And I had my assigned list of what I was supposed to bring. And there was a particular tool, I don't remember what, that I was supposed to bring. And it wasn't there when we got to the barn and there were all these esteemed scientists from the Capitol who had come up and Dr. Willett looked at me and said, well, where's this tool? And I said, well, I assumed you'd bring it. And he looked at me. <laughs> do you know what you do when you assume things? You make an ass out of you and me. And I was just really, really horrified. I wanted to crawl into the cows at that time. But he said it in a way that meant he felt that I could do better. And he expected better of me. So. I learned lessons the hard way and the easy way. People were really generous in helping me out, helping me learn from my mistakes um, and teaching me all of the different things that went on in the lab. So when I went off to college, I figured, depending on Oboe Reeds wasn't as uh, sure of an income as being a scientist. And I loved being in the lab, so I decided to be a chemist. Well, I was put into a sophomore level chemistry course my freshman year. Um, because I had worked in this lab, but I really was not prepared for this at all because I didn't know what I didn't know. And in high school, to be honest, I really hadn't been pushed. I hadn't been challenged. I hardly ever took a book home. You know, I do my Spanish homework and Latin class and stuff like that. I took my oboe home, practice, but I, <laughs> so I had no clue about what it meant to study. And three weeks into college, I started to realize I was in deep doo-doo. I really was in trouble. And I had this very stern um, professor, and it took me really almost a week to get up the nerve to go into his office hours and ask, ask a question. And I finally had my questions written down, and I went to his office, and I said, I need some help. And I asked my first question, and he kind of peered over his glasses at me and said, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I love being in the lab. I want to be a chemist. And he said, 
kind of dismissively, without answering my question, he says, I think you should be a nurse. Now, I was somebody who passed out at the sight of blood back then. Being a nurse was not an option. And I was devastated. I, I, I was floored. And it was all I could do to get out of that office before I started to cry. And I kind of crawled back, to, crawled back to my room and hid out there for the rest of the semester. And actually for the whole year, I had them all year, um, thinking something, I was damaged, I was stupid, I was flawed, there was something wrong with me. I mean, I wanted to be a chemist in here. This was my dream over. Was I not capable? I didn't know what to do. So somehow I got through that course. I'm still not sure how. <laughs> I'd like to go back and take that course over again sometime. But <laughs> um, and you know, gradually I got to ha got the hang of college. I figured out how to study. Probably didn't do as well as I would have wanted. I certainly didn't do that well in that course that semester. But fortunately, I did okay in the lab part. Um, and you know, for the next year to, through my sophomore year, it was it was a real struggle. But I got through somehow. Well, my junior year, two things happened. They were just having this big celebration for celebrating 10 years of women at this institution. And so I volunteered to work on the program for um, celebrating women in science. And one night, this was long before all the fancy printers we have now and all of that, so we had to make our posters by hand. And I'm in this science lounge with some, a group of women, most of whom are seniors, and we're sort of laying on the floor making our posters and there's this chit chat going on. And it turned to different professors, who was a good professor and who wasn't. And these women started talking about this person that I'd had my first year. And they started talking about, oh yeah, he hates women. He doesn't think that girls should be scientists, but we women will show him. And I was, I was floored because all of a sudden it hit me it wasn't about me. You know, he had this attitude about women and I wasn't the only one that he had discouraged from pursuing chemistry. And that was a huge revelation to me. And when I got over the shock of that, I was really angry. <laughs> you know, how dare he? Because he had really defeated me in certain ways. The other thing that happened my junior year that was really good was that I had two professors for physical chemistry who saw something in me and encouraged me. And they would talk about thermodynamics like it was poetry. And quantum mechanics was the most beautiful thing in the world. And I actually still think that sometimes. I love quantum, right? But they really, they made it fun. They kicked my butt. I have never worked so hard in all of my college years. But they also encouraged me. They forced me to apply to graduate school when I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. And they pushed me um, all through. And so I went on to graduate school and continued to, become, um, to pursue a career as a chemist. So I became a chemistry professor. And um, fast forward about 15 years after that initial incident, and I actually returned to my alma mater to join the faculty. And I'll never forget driving up on a Monday morning, kind of a gray Monday morning, in this moving van full of my lab equipment that I had accumulated over the years. And I pull up to the loading dock, and there's a big banner over the loading dock that says, Welcome home, Allison. 
(laughs) And I went back to the same department and I was treated like a colleague. And my science thrived and took off. It was just the best environment for me to work in. And who was still there? (laughs) And who would come trotting down the hall to ask me for help with his computer? (laughs) The same person. And it was all I could do to resist the urge to give him some really bad advice that would mess up his computer for good. (laughs) But I politely, you know, helped him out. And, um, but I really, it was a great experience. And throughout the years of being a professor, I was usually the only person of color in all the science division, certainly in all the chemistry departments that I had been in. And students would seek me out. And they would kind of camp out in my office and share their experiences with me. And I got to know their stories. And I could see how, I started to realize that half of what I was doing in that moment was especially for people who are the first in their families to go to college and students of color and people who sort of felt on the margins of the college academic community. Really what I was doing was being a cheerleader. And I was helping them navigate college and figure it out. And I was having to tell them, no, you can't do what you did in high school. That's not going to get it here. You know, you have to change the way you can do things. But you wouldn't be here if you couldn't do it. And so I found that a lot of what I was doing was just translating college to these students. But then they would tell me stories about what was said to them by their professors. And I knew from my own experience that um, not being prepared did not mean, mean that you weren't capable. And so I could often take somebody who maybe got a C their first semester of chemistry, I'd put them in my lab. and by the time they were seniors, they were turning in the best honors thesis in the department, you know, once they caught up and figured it out. And my colleagues often did not want to take the time of day for those students. Uh, they, they really just had no patience. They wanted to teach the, the creme de la creme, not realizing that they were overlooking a huge amount of talent. Um, and so I, I learned to sort of help these students understand the process, but also advocate for themselves and believe in themselves. Because I knew the devastation that could come when your self-esteem was damaged. I understood that experience. But I also knew that you couldn't make assumptions about people and that everybody had a story. And I would often find myself trying to urge my colleagues to take the time to get to know their students and know their stories and believe in their students, and certainly not to assume. Thank you. That was Allison Williams. Allison is the Associate Provost for Diversity and Intercultural Education at Denison University. She received her PhD in Biophysical Chemistry from the University of Rochester, where she was an NSF Graduate Fellow and winner of the Graduate Student Teaching Award. Prior to becoming an administrator, first at Oberlin and now at Denison, she was a chemistry faculty member for 25 years, teaching at Swarthmore, Wesleyan, Princeton, and Barnard College of Columbia University. She's a mother of two and a semi-professional oboist. 
And for those of you in the Columbus, Ohio area, we're looking into returning to Columbus later this year. So if you're interested in telling a story or contributing to the show in other ways, get in touch with us at stories at storycollider.org. Now, before we move on, I just want to remind you guys again that to celebrate our 8th anniversary, we're going to hold our first ever fundraising event on May 1st at Caveat, our home in New York City. There will be auction items, there will be nachos, there will be many, many drinks, and of course, there will be incredible stories from incredible guests. So please come party with us. Check out storycliter.org for more information. Our second story today is from Sarah Myrie. It was recorded in December 2017 at BB's Stage Door Canteen in New Orleans at our show in partnership with the American Geophysical Union. As you can probably imagine, the theme that night was geoscience. It was almost a year ago to the day that I was evicted from my house. I'm a single mom, and being evicted in a city like Seattle is really scary on an academic salary. At the same time that this was occurring, the hate and bigotry, white supremacy, misogyny, and bullying was unleashed into our culture from the election of Donald Trump. And it was a terrifying time for many of us, but myself included, because I faced losing my stable housing. About a month and a half after that, after receiving that eviction notice, I was on the way to Olympia, the state of Washington's capital. The Monday after the Women's March, the Women's March, to give invited scientific testimony to the House Environment Committee on the need to reduce greenhouse gases. And I advocated as a scientist for the reduction of emission trajectories to a cooler and safer future for the state of Washington. After giving testimony, the lawmakers asked us questions. And one of the lawmakers asked us a question about a um, problematic atmospheric scientist and weather celebrity in Washington. Now this particular atmospheric scientist um, gives great weather, has a huge platform, does lots of public education, and has very problematic communication of climate change. At every weather event, every fire, every storm, he, um, he hedges and does not attribute these events at all to climate change. And it's a problem, right, because we need scientists in the public spaces to not equivocate around the risks of climate change. As an earth scientist myself, I don't give a damn about weather attribution because climate change is fundamentally not about weather. Yes, it's interesting, let's figure those questions out, but climate change is a planetary scale phenomenon. So I chose to answer the lawmaker's question. I gave an analogy. I said, no matter how high this individual says that he can jump, the laws of gravity still apply to him. And the same is true for his communication of climate change. No matter how he equivocates about warming, the planet is still changing, and it's changing forever. From that moment of speaking truth in public, my career changed forever. 
because I'm now on record articulating my dissent with a very powerful man in my field. When you call out a climate scientist, a senior scientist for their problematic communication of climate change, things get very uncomfortable very quickly. Of course, the first response that I had was self-doubt. Had I understood his position correctly? Had I understood my position correctly? Why had I spoken at all? I could have avoided an avalanche of hostile emails and uncomfortable meetings if I had stayed quiet. On the terrible advice from a colleague that I deeply respect, I had coffee with this individual alone. I got to the cafe first, I sat down, and as he came to the table, he came with his finger outstretched at me and pointed at me as he sat down. I know who you are, he said. You're a climate extremist. You're a climate radical. It's because of people like you that we're not getting anything done. He said over and over again to me, you know nothing about the science. You know nothing about climate change. In the middle of our conversation, he asked me, so how do poor people die in the state of Washington? I said, I'm not gonna play this game with you. If you want to tell me something, just tell it to me. He said, in the state of Washington, in Eastern Washington in the winter, poor people, poor Mexican people, they die in traffic accidents related to ice. And in a future of warming, there's gonna be less ice on those roads and fewer brown people are gonna die in the future. When he said this, alarm bells started ringing in my head. You cannot use the bodies and the deaths of people of color to equivocate about the relative benefits of future warming scenarios. And you cannot use the bodies and the deaths of people of color to undergird your skepticism of consensus science. At the end of this meeting, he demanded that I recant my testimony. I said, no, I have no intention of recanting my testimony. He then threatened me, saying, if you don't recant your testimony, I will recant it for you. I left the meeting physically shaken and thoroughly disgusted, intent on moving on with my life. In the next few weeks, I wrote and published an op-ed with Jane Zelikova and Kelly Fleming in the Seattle Times calling on EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt to use basic science and act on climate change to protect the American public. In the Seattle Times website of this op-ed, this same problematic weather celebrity showed up. And in his comment, he called Jane, Kelly, and myself, quote, young, idealistic, and not real scientists, end quote. And that we were, quote, totally wrong. He didn't have to show up there, but he chose to show up there and shit on three women scientists. And the presence of a local weather celebrity in the comments created 
an amplified uh, tsunami of bullshit and misogyny that further undermined our participa participation as women in public spaces. Why, why do those matter? Those words matter. Well, first I'll tell you what those words did to me. I, I wish I could tell you that they didn't hurt me, but what he did that day profoundly hurt me because it pierced into that piece of me that I carry around as a scientist that has always said, you will never be a scientist. You will never be good enough to participate in science. And no matter how hard you work, and no matter how many, how many um, papers you publish, you will never be considered an expert in your field because people like you, they don't get to be experts. Young, idealistic, and not real climate scientists. Why do those words matter? Because it's an erasure. It feeds directly into the cultural trope that women are decorative and men are the ultimate arbiters of information and power. You know, there's a lot of space in science for a certain kind of woman, the science ingenue, the gritty and gutsy yet ultimately powerless and disposable role that many women find themselves in. But you know what? Ingenues, they don't give invited scientific testimony. And ingenues, they don't write op-eds. And ingenues, they definitely do not stand up to senior scientists. As a 35-year-old single mother, I have decidedly aged out of the ingenue category. <laughs> I am now firmly in the nasty woman category. <laughs> that is right. And that means when I speak in public about science or about feminism, what I receive is misogyny because I am stepping out of the lane of behavior that is appropriate and acceptable for people that look like me and sound like me. So that day that I was so discouraged, wondering if I should stay in science, I recovered from that day and I didn't go away. In fact, I have become much, much stronger. I'm now a contributing writer for Seattle's newspaper, The Stranger, where I write about science and climate change and misogyny and indeed this problematic weather celebrity. I'm a founding board member of 500 Women Scientists. I'm a board member of the Center for Women and Democracy. And just last month, I was awarded as one of Seattle's most influential people of 2017, an honor that was also given to the state's governor, to our attorney general, and to mayoral candidates. In this moment, I'm reminded of a quote from one of my favorite feminists, Lindy West, who says that, Women's nose and the culture are constantly eroded and degraded. A woman saying no in public, in front of other women, is a political statement. And I have learned this year that being a woman scientist itself is a political statement. And standing up for myself in public is also a political statement.
And you know, a year ago when I received that racist eviction notice because I put a Black Lives Matter sign in my front window, I didn't go away then either. I fought that illegal and racist eviction with the city of Seattle and the Department of Construction and Inspection and the Office of Civil Rights. And I won my fight and I am still in that house. And my son did not have to move across town and leave his daycare friends. And we did not have to pay that price because I said no in public. I am talking to you here right now because I have chosen in the last year to put myself out in front and say no in public in a time when we need it the most. But saying no in public comes with so many yeses. Yes to a kind and safe culture inside and out of science. Yes to equity and diversity and inclusivity. Yes to opportunities for everyone, regardless of their race, gender, ability, or identity. And yes to women, and especially women of color in power and in leadership. That was Sarah Myrie. Sarah is a research associate at the University of Washington and a board member of both 500 Women Scientists and the Center for Women and Democracy. She is actively investigating and publishing on the paleo-oceanographic history of the Pacific Ocean, using ocean sediment cores and robots on the seafloor. She is a freelance writer, a grassroots organizer, and a leading voice in the field of science communication. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Aaron Barker, that's me, and Liz Neely with help from our amazing staff and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Shane Hanlon and me, Aaron Barker. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Denison and BB Stage Door Canteen for hosting these shows, and to all the women who have blazed trails before us and those who support women in science now, keep on kicking ass. Thanks for listening. <laughs>